And now if you just open your hands. Lord Jesus, we welcome you to establish your throne here in our hearts and lives this day. Lord, you say that you live not only in a high and lofty place, but you also come and live with those who are humble and contrite of heart and who tremble at your word. So today, we choose to tremble at your word. Come, speak to us now. Living word, eternal word, come and speak the specific word that you have for us to receive this day. Lord God, we welcome you now. Jesus, life giver, bring your life now among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Welcome again. My name is Pastor Jim Olson. I have the privilege of serving here as the senior pastor of Bethel Christian Fellowship. That's becoming more and more the fact of I'm, as I become more and more of a senior, I think it's I'm hanging around a long time. So, And I'm grateful for the joyous privilege of serving here in this house and seeing the things that the Lord is doing among us. Well, this morning we are completing a series that we began here in September entitled Out of the Box, Increasing Kingdom Influence. And um, over these uh, months, we've been working under this particular premise. And that premise is that there is a kingdom culture which transcends all other earthly cultures and transforms our earthly cultural worldview values and practices. As it says in Romans 12:2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we're no longer conformed to the worldview, values, and behaviors of this world, the cultural context of this world. We have a new context, a kingdom culture context, which both transcends time, language, Um, ethnicity, uh, gender, uh, generations, all of those things, transcends that and transforms the very culture in which we live in. And so we're not to be conformed to these external earthly cultures, but we're being transformed into this kingdom culture. And in increasing kingdom influence, we've come to learn that as our worldview, values, and practices become shaped by this kingdom culture, we actually then have the opportunity to become catalysts of transformation in earthly cultural systems around us, including these key key systems of earthly culture. So over the last uh, seven weeks, we've looked at these various areas. And I encourage you, if you've not been here or you've missed some, or maybe this is your first time and you've missed them all, Um, There are CDs in the back that you can pick up with PowerPoint notes from all of these different um, messages, or you can visit online to our website at BethelTwinCities.org and uh, go there and download um, messages about increasing kingdom influence in the area of education, in the area of religion, in the area of arts and entertainment, in family and kinship, marketplace, media, and last week we looked at government. And here's... Here's what we're contending for, that we believe that the Spirit of God is leading us as a people out of the box, the box of kind of both our mental boxes, 
because it's our mindsets where we compartmentalize between the sacred and the secular. And also sometimes our, even our, our perspective or conception of church, that what happens here is church. And yes, this is one expression of church. But sometimes in our minds we compartmentalize and these four walls become the box in which church is done. But actually God is leading us out of those boxes in our minds and in our understandings to bring us into increasing kingdom influence into these various earthly systems. And so this morning, we're going to complete our series with a a, a message that I've entitled Salt and Light. Increasing kingdom influence, salt and light. Let me set this up, and I'm going to do a little bit of historical background here. I love history. History is important because those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And so it's helpful to understand some context. I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background because throughout um, its existence here on earth, all of us, the church of Jesus Christ, and all truly born-again believers have lived in a tension. We live in the tension, as the Bible describes it, of living in but not of the world. I don't know if anybody else experiences that tension, but I experience that tension on a consistent, regular basis. How do we live in, but not of, the world? We have a commitment to the Scriptures as God's revealed Word. And we also have a commitment to this world in which He has placed us. And it often seems in our hearts that those two commitments are in conflict with one another. And sometimes they are in outright conflict. They're certainly frequently in a place of tension. And our response to that tension throughout history has been typically to flow in one of two directions. One, in order to be true to the Word without compromise, we tend to ignore the challenges of the world that we live in in today, and sometimes we try to live in some panaceic, idyllic idyllic past that really never existed, but which we thought did. Or, secondly, we respond, you know, sort of relevantly to the modern world, and, and in so doing, the church sometimes has sort of twisted and trimmed God's revelation to fit quote-unquote, modern realities. But what we've been contending for is that neither of those approaches is particularly fruitful. Instead, somehow, we must learn to, in the words of John Stott, how he puts it, we need to learn to think Christianly. We need to think Christianly. We need to have that transformation happen in our mindset, so that we will know what the pleasing, perfect, good will of the Lord by applying biblical revelation to the pressing issues of the day. Now, again, going back to history for a moment, the church gives us the history of the church gives us glimpses of how the church has responded to this question down through the generations. I'm going to just take the last couple of centuries for a moment. We could go back all the way back to the early church and then Constantine and all of that. But let me just bring it into focus just for the sake of time and focus into the last couple of centuries. It's very 
interesting, the tremendous contrast there is between the church's response to the fallen world during the 18th and 19th century and its response at the beginning of the 20th century. During the 18th and 19th century, the church was at the vanguard of social change in England and in America. In his book, England, Before and After Wesley, J. Wesley, well-named, Great Breedy, writes, the evangelical revival did more to transfigure the moral character of the general populace than any other movement British history can record. For Wesley, John Wesley, that is, was both a preacher of the gospel and a prophet of social righteousness. Wesley was the man who restored to a nation its soul. Parallel to the experience of Wesley in the 18th century England is the experience of Charles Finney in 19th century America. In his 23rd lecture on revival, he wrote that the great business of the church is to reform the world. The Church of Christ was originally organized to be a body of reformers. The very profession of Christianity implies the profession and virtually an oath to do all that can be done for the universal reformation of the world. That's pretty strong stuff. I would only use, maybe switch the word and say the transformation of the world. But then at the beginning of the 20th century, a great change happened, specifically within the evangelical church, which we as an evangelical Pentecostal congregation are part of the, the, the broader evangelical tradition. A change that has been called by church historians the Great Reversal. In the Great Reversal, at the beginning of the 20th century, the Western, at least, evangelical church almost figuratively turned its back on social responsibility and reform and emphasized almost exclusively a personal relationship that a believer has with God and with Christ and almost ignored the issue of how that relationship with God might impact their responsibility on the broader world around them. So in the great reversal, the church which had been an agent, a catalyst of transformation within the context of society as a whole, became almost reduced exclusively to an individualized, personal religion which had a relationship with God that had very little to do with what was going on around. Now, a number of factors have been cited for this great reversal. One, there was a reaction against theological liberalism and the tenets of the, quote, social gospel, which was popularized in liberal churches. There was also a tremendous disillusionment that happened among people because of World War I. World War I, before World War I, there was sort of this, you know, within society as a whole, there was a sense that mankind was moving ever and ever towards a kind of enlightenment that was bringing them into a place where the, the inherent goodness of man would be seen and we would all hold hands and sing Kumbaya in harmony with one another and everything would be good. And then World War I hit and peeled away that veneer and revealed once again the capacity of man to do evil 
to other man. <laughs> All right? And so there was this tremendous uh, ex- understanding once again of the depravity of man and his seemingly endless ability to do evil. And then there was the tremendous spread. Hang with me. All right? You okay? Hang with me. This is important background. There was the tremendous spread of premillennial theology which portrays the world as evil, beyond improvement, deteriorating rapidly, and will continue to do so until Jesus comes. And if only, if only He can fix it when He comes, why try to do any kind of reformation here and now? Why even bother? So we'll just kind of shut the doors and close ourselves in our fortress, protected from the evil influences around us. Not engage in that social gospel stuff and kind of come back into that hunkering down into a very personalized, privatized, pietistic, form of Christianity. And you can see, you can look, and you can look over the history, particularly of the American church in the 20th century, and you can watch these two paths diverging from one another. But then something happened. Something happened maybe a half century ago that began to once again at least begin to sow the seeds of reversing the great reversal. Because once again, evangelical Christians and evangelical Pentecostal Christians are discovering that there is a path somewhere that that the only two paths available are not escape or embrace. That we don't only have to kind of escape the big bad world around and build sort of a cultural ghetto that which we can safely stay and, 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 and be free from all of the influences of the world. Neither do we have to embrace and twist and trim and turn and, 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 and contort to try to, to, to follow the, you know, the, the, the shifting winds and, and the, the, the various um, movements of society around us and the mindsets that, that, are, that are happening in the world today. There is another way other than escape and embrace, and that is engagement. It's engaging. As the church of Jesus Christ, we've got to wake up from our slumber, from our desire to escape, or our lethargy which creates and causes us to simply embrace, we need to open our eyes and ears and listen to the voice of Jesus who challenges us to go into a broken world with a message, a prophetic witness of kingdom culture, of healing, of wholeness. John Stott writes this, He defines mission as our human response to the divine commission. It is a whole Christian lifestyle, including both evangelism and social responsibility, dominated by the conviction that Christ sends us out into the world as the Father sent Him into the world, and that into the world we must therefore go to live and to serve and to suffer and even to die for Him. Last week I made this statement. I'm going to make it again this morning to lead into 
the rest of our time here of salt and being salt and light and doing salt and light is that the church is the only divine institution in fallen society. So the church is the focus of God's activity for the salvation of the world. So the church, therefore, must prophetically live out the values and behaviors of a kingdom, culture, world view. This is our call. This is our responsibility. In every sphere, within every system of society around us, we are called as salt and light. Jesus, in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. This is our text today. If you want to pull out your Bible uh, that's located in front of you or your own Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. Love the sound of pages turning. This is going to be our text. This is what we're going to spend and we're going to kind of unpack as the focus of our remaining time here together because I want to kind of wrap up and put an exclamation mark on what the Lord has been speaking to us. So I just want to talked very briefly this morning about this concept of being and doing salt and light. What does this mean? It says, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What does it mean to be salt and light? Let's talk about salt for a moment. Both of these are very, these are scriptural images that are used throughout the scriptures. All right, so, so Jesus is, is taking, and, and he's got a reference point as he's speaking to the crowd that's gathered here. When he went up to the mountainside and sat down, he's beginning to teach them, and he begins with the Beatitudes, okay? So the context for what he says here is the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, who mourn, for they will be comforted. And he goes on, and, and the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes become the context now then, out of which he speaks about being salt and light. It's important because we be and then do. So first of all, we've got to be. We've got to, we've got to experience the reality of these things internally in our own soul before we can take them out into a world around us. So what does it mean to be salt? It means, first of all, being purified. It means being purified. Salt is a purifying agent. It's one of the uses of salt. It purifies, as it says here in James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We need, as the church of Jesus Christ, to continually experience the purifying work of the Spirit within us. That is part of keeping ourselves 
from being polluted by the world. Again, there is this world system that is constantly seeking to conform us into its image. What it values. How it behaves. Its worldview perspective. However, we are called continuously to be purified, to be salt, to experience the purifying of the Lord so that we are kept from being polluted by the world. And then, as that happens, through our care of orphans and widows, through the various ways, through the proclamation of the Word, through the, the, the works that we do practically to demonstrate the kingdom, through the power of the Spirit flowing through us, we actually become agents of purification into the world around us. Secondly, salt preserves. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. You know, there's a certain amount of salt that we need to live. If we don't, we will die. And salt, of course, is used and has been used down through history as a preserving agent, particularly before the times when there were things like meat lockers and all of those different types of things that were that, that are used to be able to for people to be able to to preserve the things that we have. Salt is used. Have salt in yourselves. And then be at peace with each other. So there's a preserving of relationships and the love of God between us that's part of that preserving influence that happens when we become and when we be salt and light. There's a purifying, there's a preserving, and there's a seasoning that happens. I love this scripture. It's one of my favorites. Romans 14, 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. One of the ways we season the culture around us is by displaying the marks of His kingdom. We walk in righteousness, which can also be translated justice, the righteousness justice of the Lord, in the peace or the shalom, the wholeness of the Lord, and joy in the Holy Spirit. As believers, tragically, I think one of the, the, uh, the hits that we take as the people of God is that we are a, um, a dour and a sort of depressive people. With a frown on our face and sort of a, a big no out in front of us. <laughs> but we're called to radiate life and joy. Wherever Jesus went, joy broke out. He said, there's going to be joy in my house. There is a call upon us to exhibit a seasoning in the world around us. Not an artificial happiness, but a true joy that happens even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of persecution. In fact, the thing that really 
upended in the early church that upended the world around it was that martyrs were known to die singing. Because of the joy that the world didn't give and the world couldn't take away. So just focusing for a moment on joy, but it's true also of, of righteousness and justice and of peace and shalom. To be peacemakers, to have the wisdom of the Lord, to be seasoning in the world around us. All right? Let's talk about being light for a moment. Three things about being light. First of all, light brings illumination. We know that. Matthew 6, just a little bit further on in the same sermon, Jesus says these words, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The eye, through the eye, through the lamp of the body, through we, we experience as we gaze upon the Lord. It says in First uh, Corinthians chapter 4, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as we gaze into the eyes of the Lord, we're being, or 3, we're being transformed as we gaze upon Him, as we look upon Him, as we see Him, as our lives are filled with His light, it begins to illuminate the shadowed places within us and the darkness becomes light. I mean, when you are walk into a dark room and you turn on the light, the darkness flees. So it is. When Christ comes in our heart, He brings illumination. He brings revelation. We have a prophetic message. It's something completely liable. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So there's an illumination that that is transformed into a, re- a revelation. It's something that is a prophetic message that comes to us and then comes through us into a world around us. Which brings us to that third piece, which is the penetration that happens. He says, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, do everything without ar- grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. There's a powerful thing that happens. And uh, Peter's, the Apostle Peter speaks of it in, in a similar way. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. So we're like, I want you to understand this. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. But in John 7, of course, He says, I am the light of the world. When He says, you are the light of the world, we're not in and of ourselves that light, but we're like luminaries that the light is revealed through. You're a unique expression of His light. You are a unique expression of His light. You're not going to argue or grumble somebody into the kingdom. (laughs) Right? But as His illumination and revelation happens in your heart, as the, as the purification of the Lord, as the preserving of the Lord, as the seasoning of the Lord in your life, as, as, as you will live a well-seasoned life, it begins to impact 
the world around us. So let's talk for just a moment about not just being salt and light. Sorry, this should say doing salt and light. Doing salt and light. How do we do salt and light? First of all, we do salt and light through identification. We identify. This is So I'm going to come back for a moment to that tension of being in but not of the world. The first thing that we're called to is to be in the world. You are the light of the world. Right? You are the salt of the earth. You are not simply to be somewhere in a salt shaker up on a shelf carefully protected, oh no, we can't use the salt. We must keep it safe from the impurities around us. No, you are not to be in the salt shaker. Your light is not to be somewhere only in a closet somewhere, carefully protected so that it doesn't get smudged or marred by anything around it. No, it's to be there on the hill. You are the light of the world. So you have to identify and be in the world. Jesus is our great example of this. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it so beautifully, the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. There has to be an identification. This is what Jesus did for us. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22 and 23. He says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Now, he's not compromising kingdom culture values, but he is identifying with the world around him. Specifically for Paul, who was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to those people. Because Jesus doesn't look in categories of us versus them. I've said this and I'm going to keep pounding this because I think the culture around us keeps trying to back us into a place where we see the world in these diametric oppositional camps of us and them. And simply the Bible doesn't look at it like that. I've become all things to all people. There needs to be this identification. Um, Diognetius, a second century writer, described Christians this way. He says, Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They don't live in cities of their own. They don't use a peculiar form of speech. They don't follow an eccentric manner of life. On the positive side, Christians are good citizens. They lead quiet and content lives. They pay their taxes. They pray for their rulers. They're living, identified in as part of. They're in the world in which they live. You're in the world, people. It's reality. But secondly, part of doing salt and light means that there's also a separation. There is this but not of. You are in the world but not of. And again, that's where the tension point constantly comes in. So there is this not-ofness. 
As Jesus puts it in John 17 in His great final prayer, He says, I have given them Your Word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that You take them out of the world, but that You protect them from the evil one. So Jesus, even right there, says, You're not of the world, but I'm leaving you in. (laughs) Again, Diagnosis. Writing. So he talked about the identification, but he also talked about the separation. He says, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. This is in the second century he's writing this. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all people and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor. They are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repaid the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. What an incredible testimony to this early church. Separational. We're in, but not of. We're, we're soldiers. We're all foreigners. We're all foreigners living in a strange land. This is not our home. But here we are, at home, (laughs) in, but not of. So that's where the call comes to transformation. Doing salt and light means doing transformation. It means being engaged. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. A scripture that I don't have up on the PowerPoint, but I want to bring to your attention is Ephesians 6, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's who we're fighting. The church, it's written, is the extension of Christ's body in the world continues the cosmic struggle with evil because Jesus has, in fact, defeated the powers of evil on the cross. This reminds us that the powers have been defeated. So the church receives its resurrection power by the Holy Spirit and is the focus of His continuing work in the world. Therefore, the church is called to claim the power of Christ's resurrection in its struggle against evil, living in the hope of the ultimate and final destruction of all evil. And 
In the consummation, in this way, the church is a witness to the values of the kingdom and provides a continuing example of the presence of Jesus in the world. So our role as a church in the culture around us is grounded in Christ. And we represent Christ. We represent him to the world around us. Last scripture. This is when Paul encounters Jesus. He's Saul at this point. Encounters Jesus in the the road to Damascus. And, and, And here, Jesus, he has this encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says, get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. As Jesus transformed Saul into Paul and sent him into a culture around him. So Jesus still today says to us in the Spirit, I believe, get up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you to appoint you. The revelation that I have given to you of myself is in order that you may go out of the box and into a world that desperately needs salt and light. Will we be that people? By God's grace, I believe the answer will be yes. Could we get up and stand on our feet this morning? Let there be light, Lord. You created us to be salt and light. To do salt and light, Lord. Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters gathered here in this house today. To all who will hear this message, Lord God. All who have heard this message from your word over and over again. The call to be and to do salt and light. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who are engaged in the areas of education. For those that are engaged in reaching to people of other religions. Lord, I pray for those, O oh God, who find themselves engaged in the areas of art and entertainment. For those, Lord, in their families and kinships, Lord God. In the marketplace, God. Those involved and engaged in media. Those engaged in government. Jesus, in every system, God, of our culture, Lord, help us to be and to do salt and light. To represent You well, Lord, and Your kingdom culture. Jesus, shine through us, O Lord. Shine through us together, Lord, individually and corporately. Shine Your light. Lord, let Your salt Be poured out upon the earth, O God. Bring transformation, Jesus. Lord, even as we stand here before this election day coming up Tuesday, we pray, O God, that You might exalt righteousness, O Lord. 
that transcends all political parties. Not about that. But Jesus, exalt your righteousness. Exalt peace. Bring, release joy, God, for your glory. And now, I pray that you would go with the immeasurable love of God the Father, the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, and the inexhaustible strength, power, comfort, and hope of the Holy Spirit be with you and yours. As you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations, sent to be and to do salt and light. Go with the banner of his favor over your life. And may his goodness continue to chase you down. Until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I bless you, people of God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Share God's love with each other. Hallelujah.